Hey, I've popped on a bunch of Ringer podcasts recently. Just want to give you a heads up. Went on Larry Wilmore's show. Went on Dave Chang's show for his 250th anniversary. Went on Sports Cards Nonsense last Thursday. Went on Real Ones with Logan and Raja on Monday to talk about Suns, Warriors, and a whole bunch of other stuff. You can check out all of those podcasts on the Ringer Podcast Network. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man... Why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Verbo. You know, it is stressful enough just with the airport situation. No matter where you're going, it's always packed. You're always worried the weather might be bad. Is my plane going to get delayed? You just want the actual place you're staying at to be a lights out experience. So if you've booked a vacation rental and you found yourself stuck making small talk with the host, where you've arrived to find out it doesn't look anything like the pictures, you know, that's, that's the worst. You could avoid the awkwardness with Verbo. Verbo has helped travelers find great private vacation rentals for nearly 30 years. You heard me correctly. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your private vacation rental in the Verbo app. We're also brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, where I will have another same game parlay for you, NBA related on Wednesday. Go to the FanDuel Sportsbook app and you can find that one on there. Not sure what the game is yet, but it will be there on Wednesdays. Go check it out. We boost them up for you and uh, and you'll get better odds. The rewatchables. Me and Jimmy Kimmel did Saturday Night Fever. It went up Monday night and you can check that out. Uh, it's certainly a film that changed pop culture. It changed the way movies were made. It ties into the Music Box documentary that we did about Robert Stigwood called Mr. Saturday Night that premieres Thursday night, 8 p.m. It's the fifth film of our Music Box series. It is directed by the great John Maggio and uh, and really enjoyed not only doing the Rewatchables pod with Jimmy about um, a movie that really felt like one of the most five famous movies of my childhood, but also how it ties into the film we did. So check out the Rewatchables, check out the Music Box, 8 p.m., Thursday night. If you missed the first four, you can check out all of them on HBO Max as well. Coming up, Ryan Russillo and I, we're going to talk a little Pat's Bills, a little NBA, and a little succession. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, we're taping this. It is 8.30 Tuesday morning, Pacific time. Ryan Rosillo is here. We haven't gotten together in a while. There's a lot going on. We'll start with Pat's Bills. Old school game. Mac Jones, three passes. Pat's win. I, I've always made this point about Belichick, and I'm going to make it again. I think he cares about the history way more than a lot of people realize. And I think he looks at opportunities like yesterday as like, well, what's the difference between if we do four more play actions? What, what if we just run the ball down their throats the whole game. We prove our toughness. 
and pass as little as we possibly can. And there will be something memorable about this game, not just historically, but for our team that we went into Buffalo. We didn't even have to throw. We just ran it down their throats. We proved we were tougher. We dealt with the elements and we won. I do feel like he cares about that stuff. I've been with this guy for 21 years at this point. I do think he thinks that way with this stuff. Is that crazy to you? No, not at all. I, I think you're right on point with him in appreciating the history. And I think for all the times where access or just him opening up to anybody was such a, a challenge, um, yet then he totally turns it on once you're talking about access for him historically. Like the stuff that he was doing with NFL Network was to kind of, I don't even think it was like a selfish thing. I think it was allowing us to realize who he is and then also being part of history because that should be documented. You know, I'm not comparing him to George Washington, but George Washington knew to keep his papers around. Like he was constantly boxing up all of his correspondence with everybody because he had this idea, this vision that he was at the forefront of being one of the maybe the man who would who would navigate the beginning of this country. And it's it's really weird whenever you read anything about Washington. Again, I'm not saying Belichick is George Washington, but I think Belichick not only his appreciation of history, I think a big part of him opening up and doing some of these really cool projects has been because he's like, you know, I should let people get a chance to lean in here and see what this is all about because this is an unprecedented run. So specific to last night, yeah, I think it all plays in. And I think it's also a galvanizing thing. I think it's the kind of thing where Matt Chatham had a tweet. You know, he used to play for the Pats and it was a great tweet. He goes, this is the kind of plane ride home where the beers start flying and it's this galvanizing thing where like we just went in there and ran it down your fucking throats for three hours. David Andrews, the center, had a quote in the press game conference that was like that, too. He was like, that was the most memorable game of my career. <laughs> like, like, if you're an offensive lineman on that team, you're just so giddy. Yeah, with the Belichick thing, this goes back to last decade. This goes back to the 2000s. Like, he let David Halberstam follow him around for a season. He let Michael Hawley write two behind-the-scenes books. He let, I think in 2009 or 2010, he let NFL Films follow him around for a documentary. And then there was a second one in 2015 to do your job, right? He, even uh, with the NFL 100 or whatever, he <laughs> threw himself into that. He was like a panelist. So I do think he cares about the history stuff. I think people judge him by the boring press conferences, but that's been the point for two decades. He doesn't want to say anything in a press conference that could incite the other team, offend them. You know, I was, I've watched, I don't know if you've seen Man in the Arena yet, which I've, I've actually enjoyed. I thought the first two parts were really good. Third part was all right, but Belichick, I forgot I forgot some of this stuff because there's been so many games at this point. Belichick before the Eagles Super Bowl. Patriots are favored. And there's there's I think audio of him just reading the team the Super Bowl parade because it leaked out that the Eagles had put in their Super Bowl parade. And he's just monotone reading it to them. Oh, and then we're gonna take a right and we're gonna go down uh down Holly Street and and he's just reading it for five minutes, trying to motivate them. So anyway, I think he cares about all this stuff. I think he saw last night as an opportunity to prove to the team how tough they were, that they were the toughest team in the AFC, and that's what they did. Yeah, I haven't catched any of the Brady stuff. I've I've realized this in the last five-plus years that one of my least favorite versions of content is athlete-produced content about themselves. I'm the same it's, way. It's, it's brutal most times. So even if it's somebody that I'll want like obviously I've rooted for Brady. I I've root for Brady more than I root for the Patriots at this stage of my life. 
And yet, I don't know. I've I've sat through too many documentaries. I've watched too many basketball features on too many different guys. And I go, you guys just were like, hey, it's our turn to do a doc. So I haven't gotten to it yet. I would push back only a little on that. The way you phrased the Belichick part where it's all strategic. I think what's frustrating about the times when he opens up and how great it is, as how petty. And I think he puts more energy into being petty at times, which again, doesn't matter. Mm. It's it's not part of the evaluation here. It has nothing to do with him being the greatest coach ever and continually reinventing this team all the time, even with Brady and now without. Uh, he deserves all the credit. But yeah, I mean, as somebody who's consumed it from the media side of it, which no fans will ever care about, and I totally understand, I just feel like there's times where the energy is like, wait, are you going out of your way to be petty about this because this seems fucking stupid too this seems to be as big of a waste of energy as it would be for the other stuff which i think is again you see this one version that it's insignificant it doesn't matter and then you see the great version when he's excited to be a part of something where you're like you couldn't have done any of that you couldn't have ever been that guy and still just beat everybody but again it's just it's always the thing with belichick it's kind of like lebron in a way where there's little nitpicky things that i could point at when you're in the public eye for 20 plus years but at the end of the day, like, how would I start talking about LeBron? I talk about him as the one of the two greatest players I've ever seen and a guy who is guaranteed to bring your team to victory. And that's the same thing I would do with Belichick. So a lot of the little stuff doesn't really ever matter. It's the slights are a big thing with him. And it, a lot of the great people we've had in sports, the slights and taking some perceived slight or a real slight and drawing some sort of crazy competitive energy from it seems to be the recurring theme over and over again. But All right, just how much fun did you have, though? How much fun did you have? How bad, how mad were you at the second pass attempt? Like, it must have been, I remember no, I, what it was I wanted like them when to I really throw cared. more. I just wanted them to win the game. And I, they got, oh, really? We, okay. We, we were just like, the play action, at some point, Buffalo had 10 guys in the box, right? And Ramondre had the greatest 78 yards I think I've ever seen in my life. Every, <laughs> every yard was against 10 guys. I just never seen anything like it. And at some point you just think, oh, especially if you're on the left hash mark or the right hash mark and you have Hen Hunter Henry on the side and he's got basically one-on-one -on -one with two thirds of the field on a play action that just seems like the easiest 10 yard pass ever. But they just weren't messing around. They didn't want to turn the ball over. That's what made it so crazy. The Nikhil Harry thing. A, I've never seen him back on a punt return. And then B, why is he going near the ball? And then C, it somehow it's his helmet. And that was their only fuck up. They clearly wanted to go through the game. No turnovers. Let's get out of here. We're tougher than these guys. I knew going into the game, they were tougher. The, the question to me was Mac, bad conditions Monday night. And Belichick was just like, I'm removing that. I'm, re I'm removing that concern for you. He's Our rookie quarterback will not be involved today. He's going to hand off and that's it. Yeah, the Nikhil thing was tough. And I know people are like, well, why does he have him back there? I, I am not a fan of trying to find a way to blame somebody other than whose fault it is. I mean, Nikhil, get away from the ball and you're a professional receiver. And, you know, it's not like it hasn't been bad enough. But Nikhil kicked the shit out of everybody blocking last night. What he, he was did. doing on sealing that edge. So that was more important, except that that led to seven points. And seriously, the other field goal on the Josh Allen flag i mean these flags are so ridiculous at the out of bounds thing i think is worse than the qb hits or even the taunting because it's strictly to related like which side did you get pushed out on oh you got picked you got pushed out on your home side and i got 17 strength and conditioning guys and khakis and pegasus freaking out asking for a flag and then human nature is that ref always freaks out then throws the flag that wasn't even close Allen nah. was inbounds reaching and gets pushed out as a defensive play so now you're thinking wait did the bills get 10 points out of this on a bad penalty again they still had to make more plays and make the kick in those conditions but the Nikhil seven you're thinking this is a gift and what's been otherwise perfect but I'll ask you this about Allen because you remember the playoff game 
um, trying two to remember which ago. playoff. Two years ago, where Allen scrambled around forever, and it was like, what are you doing? It was against On Houston, the- wasn't it? I'm going to say it was Houston Buffalo. I think they it lost was. that one. Yeah, I think it was. Think it keep, was. keep talking, and I'll find it. Okay. Um, it was just one of those plays where you're kind of like, you know, Wentz has a little of it in him, has had it in him. Um, you know, Burrow, who I love, has a little of it in him too, where you're kind of like, you got to figure out when to get rid of the ball here or when to kind of give up on this play, even though physically you're capable of doing some really special things. And Allen is more physically gifted than either of those guys. And Allen on the third down play, I'm thinking, all right, and this is when they turn it over on downs, basically at the end of the game. I'm like, it's, he's got to think two downs. He's got to think throwing underneath the soft area here. And then he's going to be about the 12 looking at a quick throw into the end zone. Because I thought once McDermott let him throw it a little bit more, it was kind of scary for Pats fans being like, maybe they should have done this a little bit more. Because Allen's arm in those conditions. didn't. Yeah, like, the conditions didn't matter. It was it was kind of scary, and then also on top of it, should you have done this a little bit more? And instead, Allen almost gets sacked twice. He still makes a sick throw to Dawson Knox that's broken up in the end zone, but that was the third down throw where it's like, okay, well, now you have to make a 20-yard-plus throw in these conditions because you didn't take the free yardage knowing it was two-down situation anyway. And I think there's still a part of Allen that he's got to evolve past that. I thought Buffalo's game plan was atrocious. They have terrible running backs. And they they were like, oh, yeah, we'll play some power football, too. And the Patriots were like, great, bring it on. If they had spread the field with their receivers and their tight ends and used Allen as the runner, I think they would have beaten us. I really do. If Allen, if I'm a Buffalo fan, I'm I'm waking up today and I'm like, how does Allen not have like 21 runs in that game? How How is it not just spread the field? He's either quick passing to the outside or wherever like the wind's not going or he's just taking off and putting his shoulder down and trying to get three, four yards. He's a better runner than anyone they have. And I, I just thought that was a bizarre game plan. Conversely, the Pats, when they had that incredible drive that went all the way to the end of, I think it was the end of the third quarter where it was like 15 plays. It was just Ramondre over and over again. And at some point, the play action was sitting there and they, at, at this point, they were just too committed to it. But it was a very strangely coached game. The Nikhil Harry thing was probably the weirdest part. I wouldn't have had anyone back on the punts. Um, but in general, like the Pats are like in the all-time driver's seat in the conference now because their, their conference record is so far better than anyone else that even if they're in a tie with whoever, they're still going to get a one seed. They have four conference games left. They're nine and four. They're seven and one in the conference. Everybody else has three wins or more. The Chiefs have four conference losses. Uh, Baltimore has four conference losses. Buffalo has five conference losses. Tennessee has three conference losses. So the Pats Bay, I think they could go two and two and somehow still maybe get a one seed if the other teams don't do well. But if they go three and one, they're getting the one seed. So, and they have Buffalo back in New England the next couple of weeks. And one of the things I like about this team is I think they can win any kind of way. They can win power football. But I also think that if they had to throw, I think they could do that too. I think it's a really good team. Uh, they're really good. And to watch them line up, I almost felt, you know, I know a couple that was Poyer and Hyde, um, the guys from Buffalo that were asked straight up. And the way they were asked, like, hey, are you embarrassed that they just lined it up and you guys couldn't figure it out? And they're kind of like, hey, we gave up 14 fucking points. All right. Yeah. And. Uh, at that point, I, I didn't love the way the question was. And then I wasn't sure if they were kind of just mad, which happens. I mean, you yeah. sit up there and 
physical combat for three plus hours and have somebody ask you a question if you're humiliated personally probably isn't the greatest time. Uh, but I mean, they did only give up 14 points in this thing. So McDermott was was spicy after as well. He was. Uh, I'll only I'll only you really think the Pats could win a shootout? You think they could win a shootout in the playoffs? I don't know if it that like a shootout, like a 38-35, but I think they could win like a 30-27, 31-27 type of game. The thing about the AFC, though, is there's no team that's going to have that game with them. Really, the only one is the Chargers. And the Chargers, they could put up 40 points on because the Chargers' defense isn't good. But you go down the line, like, KC has totally evolved into this kind of defense ball control team, which was what was so weird about Sunday night with Denver where Denver was in that mode, like they were playing the Chiefs two years ago, where it's like, ah, we got to get touchdowns, got to get touchdowns. Like, not really, just get some points. Like, the Chiefs are going to (laughs) be around 20 to 24 points. Like, you need, get points, keep the ball. Um, With them, Tennessee, I think Indianapolis is another ball control team. The Ravens, I don't even think will be there in the end, so it won't matter, and the Bills. Like, I, I don't know if there's the shootout team. I think the NFC is the shootout team's. Like the Bucks, you might have to really score some points to compete with if they have all their guys back, right? They, the Bucks could be like a 38-35 type playoff game at some point. Well, it could be any of those teams. I think Arizona can put up a ton of points. Yeah. And they constantly feel like they're overlooked. And, and the numbers that you have with Green Bay when you take out the Jordan Love start, right? Like those are still some of the best passing offensive numbers that you're seeing in the season, uh, this season in the league. I'm with you on kind of the Tennessee thing. Like Tennessee's sitting here at the two seed bill, and I'm going, all right, not, you know, I mean, they're just a completely different team with all the injuries, and they're a different yep. team without Henry, who they're not getting back as opposed to the receivers. Baltimore, it's been a really bad month. Um, and then you factor in all the injuries kind of catching up to them. Lamar kind of getting into this rut. I'm not well, they, going as they far lost, as to say they lost Humphrey. They lost their corner. They didn't, too. Have, That's a, why. They didn't yeah. have a good secondary anyway. They lost their their really their only guy that battered. So I I think they're a cross off for me, Baltimore. I'm not ready. You know, I I don't know if I'd go that far with it, but it's just it feels like between Kansas City, the Chargers, and Cincinnati, I like the three teams behind the two and three seed better than I like the two and three seed at this point. And it's because well, they did you see some Baltimore's schedule. Baltimore's yeah. at Cleveland, home Green Bay, at Cincy, home Rams, home Pittsburgh. That's going to be really tough. That could be two and three for them. I think Cincy, Cincy's San Francisco at Denver, home Baltimore, home KC, at Cleveland, and they're only a game back. I don't know. I, th- I think they could potentially jump them. But um, yeah, the Tennessee the other thing, thing, though, though, well, okay, finish the Tennessee thing, and I have a quick No, just quickly, thing, like, if Henry comes back in week 17 and that's like a four seed, that's kind of a nightmare. Because I think Tennessee might be the, it's either the second or third best team with with uh, with Henry if they get the receivers back. Um, that's kind of the team I would be afraid of. That yeah. was why I was hoping the Pats wouldn't get the five seed because there was a possibility that you get the five seed, you're going to Tennessee in round one, Henry's back, A.J. Brown's back, and that's a really hard team to play. It's, you know, they're not going to make mistakes. They've matched up well with the Pats in the past. Anyway. Yeah, Rappaport said yesterday, I guess, that there's still a sense that Henry returns in December, but um, we'll see. I- I'm not ready to just say the Chiefs are this team that is going to try to ball control you to death. I'm just not. I'm just not. Well, that's like, what not, they're I'm trying not, to do. Oh, well, it's fine, but I'm I'm just not of the belief that the Chiefs are never going to look like the Chiefs again this year at some point. I thought I watched Orlovsky on first take yesterday. I thought he made a good point. Like every week they drop these big passes, right? The Chiefs. 
there's between two and seven drops a game where you're like, oh, you know, and sometimes they go off their hands and their interceptions. And he's like, at some point you are who you are. And if you're just dropping passes every week, maybe that's the offense you have. It's not like, oh, if we can only get rid of those drops, it's like, maybe that's your team. Maybe you're trying to be this ball control team, but over and over again, you have Pringle over the middle dropping something. You have McCole Hardman on a wide receiver screen. He's dropping it. Hill has had the yips all year. Like, maybe that's your team. I don't know. It's just hard for me to write off a group that we've seen look as impress as impressive as any offense we've ever seen in the game. So now, because, you know, a matchup with Denver where it's another game with Mahomes and no touchdowns and a pick, um, I, I just, do you really think you get through a version of this NFL without one major shootout? And as much as this Mac Jones story is incredible, it's yeah. great. You might have something here for a really long time. His poise, his footwork, a lot of the stuff that's harder to figure out until he's actually doing it on a Sunday. Is this team equipped with the guys on the outside as great as Bourne has been, the way the offensive line has worked? Are they equipped to win that kind of shootout? And I still think it's a completely fair question, and I think it's a major assumption to be like, oh, yeah, they'll be fine with that. I agree with you. Casey's the team I'm afraid of. Been watching them pretty carefully the last few weeks. They're, they definitely <laughs> they could rush the passer. Um, I think they have a lot of confidence. Their and defense still, has turned it on here. Yeah, the last I think five, they have a lot of confidence. Games. I think Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, since he came back, it's the best I've ever seen him look. And I'm scared of Mahomes. And I'm always going to be completely terrified of him in a playoff game. Like, I'm never I'm never going to feel great about going against him. So that would be the team. Quickly on the on the documercials thing that you were talking about, about athlete content. Um, I'm with you. And that was why I didn't want to watch the Brady thing. And then I was told by a bunch of people, like, hey, if you're a Pats fan, like, there's just a lot of good video. There's a lot of good behind-the-scenes stuff. I, I actually did learn a lot of stuff. One of the things that it's very, very, very positive about Belichick. And one of the things is about the early years with Brady, how on Tuesdays, him and Belichick would watch tape and they would watch the other team's defense that they were about to play. And it would be like, he'd basically be like, you know, Belichick was my professor. He just taught me about the defenses I had to watch. And he was like, you know, th those Tuesday sessions with him early in my career were like the most valuable thing that happened in my, in my career. I had this guy who knew everything about everything, just walking me through what a defense was doing and teaching me this mindset of how to think, how to attack, how to be prepared every week. And it's, I think there's this Brady-Belichick re reconciliation thing. I don't even think they've had a fallout, but I think over the next few years, it's going to be very favorable on both ends because I think now that the both guys are removed from it, I think uh, I think they both appreciate the experience. You had this amazing thing where you're one of the great coaches of all time, probably the greatest, and one of the great football players of all time, and they just happen to spend two decades together. And I think as the years pass, I think I think they'll both lean into that versus lean away from it versus like how Scottie Pippen has handled the Jordan thing. <laughs> the opposite right? of, right. of the Pippin Jordan approach is what you're telling me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> was, yeah, we weren't friends. Jordan was that good. Like, yeah, I don't think they're going that way. I think it's going the Couldn't other go way. left. You're like, wait, <laughs> what? Like no one figured that out, Scotty, ever at any point. Uh I'm sure whatever Brady, like I, I think we both agree that Brady towards the end is like, wait, you're we're really doing this? I'm really out of here. Are you fucking kidding me? Because yeah. if you think of all the little things that happened along the way, and then the information that you and I are able to pick up post that, you know, um, Brady went out of his way to basically have Robert Kraft distanced from the decision. 
because yeah. it felt it felt like Kraft would be like, "Can you do me a solid here, so everybody in town doesn't hate me and say that I had nothing to do with this?" And that's basically what Brady did for him. When Brady went back to the negotiating table, the story goes that they were like, "We already they, we've already made you an offer." He's like, "What are you talking about?" And they were like, "Yeah, the offer from last year for yeah. one year left. Like that's it. That's how you're going to handle this with me." And so I'm sure Brady. He's always been pretty good. He's never been one to like tell anybody to fuck off. He, you know, he's his very whatever his brand is, it's combative in a way that's almost hard to ever tell how combative he is because he doesn't really call anybody out. So I don't know that he was ever going to call Bill out, but I'm sure winning a Super Bowl the first year you leave has probably mellowed any of that angst as top of everything else. I mean, talk about the ultimate walk off to go, all right, fine. Like you want to go in another direction? Cool. Uh, you guys got Cam Newton. I just won a Super Bowl. So maybe it's easier to be nicer about it now. Well, and same thing for Belichick. If he hadn't been able to rebuild this as a contender, maybe he's a little snarkier about the whole thing. But since he was able to rebuild the team, now now they're both in a good place and they can look at it a little more objectively. I, I want to talk about the Pippen thing, but let's take a break. I followed this uh, Pippen stuff. I think it's so bizarre that NBA players, ex-NBA players are turning into like the old professional wrestlers where it's like, we have an interview with the ultimate warrior and he just starts taking shots at Hulk Hogan. You're like, what's going on? Is this real? Is this, is this fake? What's happening? This is happening all the time now with guys who used to play in the league where I don't know whether it's a way to, it's a way for them to get attention again or, if they think maybe it's this podcast world we're in now where everybody's getting interviewed left and right, or I, I don't understand it, but there seems like there's more animosity between the old guys in the, for years, it was always the new, the guys who were currently playing kind of getting kind of bummed out that the X generation was crispy at them, right? Why don't you get, why aren't you guys more supportive of us? We're carrying the torch for you. Now it's just the X guys going at each other. And I don't understand it, but why is basketball turned into professional wrestling with retired players? Whenever you use a wrestling analogy, I'm ready to cringe, but this is perfect. It really is <laughs> because it's just, but this has been going on for years. Okay. Whether it was Oscar Robertson who came on with us and Mike and Mike, when I filled in and we asked him how Steph would have been handled in his era. And he was just like, pick him up full court. Fucking idiots, you know, and you're just like, that's it, that's it, big O, yeah. just, just pick them up full court, and you know, and and then he would be like, you guys are idiots, like you, you don't remember Tom Tom Lewis, but Tom Lewis could shoot too, and you were like, no, I, what, <laughs> who, and I'm making up a name, but that's what he did. He was kind of like, you guys are fawning over Steph Curry, you don't remember Tommy Lewis, and I was like, I don't, I don't, and then I looked up, and again, that's not whose the name was. It's I already had forgotten yeah. it. And I looked the guy up, and like he had a couple decent seasons. And it's not just that. It's the TNT crew, which we all love the show. We all love Charles. I think Shaq's evolved into something really cool. And they dump on the, like, that's their, that's their shtick is they dump on it. And, you know, during the, the peak Steph stuff, and then everybody just saying, oh, well, whatever, this wouldn't work back in the day, back in the day. It was just a very weird deal that you had a full generation of 90s players that all had outlets. You know, McGrady's on TV. The Jump yeah. had a bunch of these guys on it. Um, you know, Countdown rotated a bunch of different players. They're all of the same generation that decided the guys playing the last five years all sucked. And it was the only form of of human 
testing where somehow we were led to believe the science was going in reverse in basketball, but going going forward with everything else. Guys are throwing faster. They're running faster. All these other elements of like just pushing the limits more and more. It's like, no, no, basketball is actually we peaked in 97 and now we're on the other side of it. And we're evolved. Like, so I it's been happening for a while. I do think that Pippen takes it to another level in that. He just feels so slighted by the whole thing. When I felt like the last dance, Bill, when we did that stuff, I feel like history looks back on Pippen and almost props him up a little bit more where I felt like in the moment, and I did this rant, I think a month or so ago, Pippen was never talked about like, hey, is Pippen the single best player in the league right now? We never did that during the time. And in fact, no, it was, it was about brought- does he belong on the top level with some of the other guys or not was the argument. It was never, is he the best guy? It was, is he one of the best guys? It was a real conversation. Yeah, but it was never left where there was a single season where you went, Pippen's the best player. And I think no. that that's how it's been kind of remembered. At least that's what I thought the last dance did a little bit there. Uh, it's it's very clear hanging Jordan with that that much. Like it would just, it hazes the shit out of you mentally. And Pippen is the one guy that, I don't know, just doesn't want to hear it anymore. But when you start saying like you're better than him, he told... We had a guy in production at ESPN who tweeted it out. He goes, I worked on an NBA rap show. And in the pre-show meeting, when we were going over topics. Pippen said to me, I, you know, I was better than Jordan. Right. And this is what we're dealing with. I don't. I, so I think there's a couple of things going on. I think Jordan made a lot of money from the last dance. Pippen probably didn't make any money. Right. Gives this big interview. He thinks it's about the 98 season. There's basically a whole half of an episode about why he didn't come back into the game. He's a bigger part of the documentary than he thought. He gives this interview. Oh, maybe, and they dump on him, too, for his contract, which yeah, and has to suck to watch years later. Go ahead. Yeah, and I, I think he was sensitive about that stuff. It, it's not dissimilar from why Chris Webber ultimately didn't want to be in the Fab Five documentary. He wanted to talk about the timeout again. You know, that you could have come up with 100 reasons and him versus Jalen and all that stuff, but it was really like he didn't want to relive that stuff. I got bummed out by this one, though, because as somebody who really loves this stuff, like watching Pippen and Jordan in person, we talked about it when we did some of the, uh, what do we call those? The, what do we call those pods? Rewatchables. Watching Jordan and Pippen in person after Jordan came back from baseball was like one of the great basketball joys of my life. I'd never seen two guys united like that. And I, I got to watch Bird and McHale and Parrish for, you know, their entire run. It, the Jordan Pippen thing was different. They were so tuned together it reminded me a little of the Beatles and Chuck and I talked about this a tiny bit last Thursday, watching the incredible Beatles doc and how McCartney and Lennon, like if anything jumps out of that doc for eight hours, it's like, wow, these guys had something like really special, you know, and it, there's no way that these guys stopped being a band because they didn't like playing music with each other. Cause you could see it. I felt that way watching Pippen and Jordan those last couple of years. Like I, I just felt like Jordan had built Pippen, you know, Hoops IQ, osmosis, competitiveness, all this stuff. He kind of created this perfect sidekick for himself, you know? And when you would watch them together, they would have these moments where you honestly felt like if they needed a steal, those two guys would just cross midcourt and go, let's just go get the ball. (laughs) And they would just take the ball from whoever the point guard was. Or like, nobody's, nobody's getting a layup on us for this entire quarter. Nobody would. And it's just kind of a bummer that he's feels so shitty about it now. I'm I'm bummed out for him. You know, he definitely didn't make as much money as he probably should have. He feels like he didn't get 
the historical kind of love that maybe he thinks he deserves. And he's just way more bitter than somebody should be who, you know, won six titles and who Steve Kerr said was the best teammate he ever had. Like, I think the people that played with him really loved him. So I feel bad for him. Well, if he was doing it to get attention for the book, um, then maybe we can't feel bad for him. Um, I think historically he's held up really well and people look back on him far more fondly. But the Jordan thing, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where it's like an eye roll at the dinner table where you just go, I don't even like, what the hell am I supposed to do? Yeah, what's what going am I supposed to do guy? with this one? I mean, even people in Chicago, you know, who, who love this guy, who he brought them some of the greatest joys of their lives are kind of like, what? And it's such a great city too. Like that'd be the thing I, I'd be worried about is where if I'm still such a big deal in a city, like he should be in Chicago. Like, do I really want to start going around taking shots at the single most important athlete in that city's amazing history? Like, I don't know if that's, that's the best move. Either. It's not great. He just, but this goes back to the wrestling thing. He just seems like the bitter old wrestler who never got a chance to win the WWF title. Cause Hogan kept being in his way. And now he's just, lobbing shots at him. The whole partnership thing with basketball, which I, I remember back when my fingers worked, writing about a few times. You saw it with Shaq and Kobe, where that hit the point where they just they just absolutely hated each other, and one of them had to leave. Um, you saw it with LeBron and Wade, which I think initially started as an equal partnership, and then Wade's body started to break down a little, and LeBron just ascended and which is clearly not only the best part in the team, but in the league. And they had to figure out that recalibration. Then LeBron eventually ditches him and goes to Cleveland. Now we're seeing it with a couple different teams. The Durant-Harden, I think, is the most interesting partnership right now because Durant, I think, is playing the best. I don't Have you ever seen Durant play better? I just think he's so nuts. I mean, you had a tweet the other day that I just disagreed with where you were like, hey, Giannis is the best player in the world, whatever. And I, I just go, I don't know. I, I, I've not, I'm not, even after the title, I'm not going to let myself say somebody's better at basketball than Kevin Durant is right now because I still think clear out, you've got to get it done. That's what this game really is about. Like, what do you yep. do when nothing else works? There's no way I'm taking anyone. And as much as I love Giannis's Are you uh, talking one side of the court, one side of the court though? Yeah, but it's not like Durant's defense isn't good. Durant's defense, like he's, He's the one holding this thing together. Harden's gotten better since the disastrous start of this whole thing, but it's just, it's very weird how bad NBA players are at, at, at I don't know, in this case for Durant, maximizing peak years for who you hit your wagon to. I mean, we thought Kyrie was the one that didn't make any sense. And Harden, who, you know, it depends on what part of the argument you want to believe that, oh, he's just slow from this hamstring. I mean, this has had to have been one of the most severe hamstring injuries in the history of hamstrings because, let's face it, I mean, Harden's just a disinterested guy. Since Kevin Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Since I mean, Kevin look, Johnson had a four-year hamstring injury. Even if things have gotten better for Harden, and there's some stats that will tell you that they are, there's just a, a lack of, of giving a shit from him, which is only going to get worse, I would imagine, as he gets older. And then you've got a bunch of other injuries. I mean, Harris has missed time, and they're kind of piecing this whole thing together. But you'd have Durant go into a situation where it's like, okay, I want to play with these guys. And again, the Kyrie thing was teaming up a little bit more. And it also speaks to what's going on with the Lakers right now. We're going to talk Lakers at some point. I think the best thing is to have an open mind and be fair considering all the different stuff they try to put together. But think about it. I mean, LeBron met with Russell Westbrook and was like, yeah, let's do this. I know. It's like, do you not have league pass? Like what, what do you, so back to the Durant thing. Yeah. So as you know, my fingers don't work anymore. About a month ago, if I was still <laughs> writing columns, that would have been the column I would have written. Um, 
the the exact point you just said was December seventh. I would have probably second week of November. Just Durant, like his own worst enemy for his career, right? He had first of all, he was in a great situation with Golden State. That I get all the reasons that it burned out there, right? He at some point realized that was Steph City. We've talked about this a million times. He wanted his own thing. He wanted to be the centerpiece of it. He wanted to put it together. I get it. But man, he's in his prime. I think offensively, this is the best I've ever seen him look. And that dates back to last playoffs. And he hitched his wagon to Kyrie, who there were red flags galore, and he ignored all of them. And then Harden, who just seems like one of those guys that as he hits his early mid-30s, is he going to care off the court to the point where now you can't do it with young legs and just energy and all that stuff. When you hit your early mid thirties in basketball, now it's like a work ethic thing. Now it is a conditioning thing. Now it is a, I have to keep adding because my body's starting to deteriorate a little bit. You got to get thinner too. I mean, that's how Duncan had that second run or third run. Duncan got thinner and you were like, man, I thought this guy might've been done five or six years ago and he salvaged it and was still amazing because he goes, I got to get smaller. Or Nash. Nash is another one. Nash was able to basically go until 2010 when he had a fucked up back because of all the other stuff he was doing. Um, Kobe's another one. Kobe from 08 to 2012, which is not where he basically should have peaked as an all-around basketball player, but he did. You think like athletically, he peaked early 2000s. And if you look at yeah, early Kobe 2000 stuff to 2003, it's like ridiculous. He was never the same athletically after that. But he kept adding and he and he added all the weight and and I feel the flip side about Davis and I, I've talked about this on the pod where it's like Davis decided he just wants to be this giant center now and I think it's a mistake I think he should have gone the Duncan way I would have gone sleeker um faster versus like just trying to turn yourself into 2002 Shaq I don't get it well uh, to Davis I think he got really sick of hearing about how soft he was and I think if you're a young guy, which well, Davis, why does he care? Not, still you're is. Anthony Davis. Don't listen to anybody. Do what's best for he you. Because you... some people care and some people don't. And Davis is clearly a guy who cares. He gets sick yeah. of hearing about, like, remember, this goes back to that Phoenix series and him playing when it looked like he shouldn't have been out there. And then I think people that were plugged in kind of knew that it was Davis just sick of watching Shaq shit on him on TNT. So he's right. like, I'm going to go ahead and play. So, you know, all of us that want to pretend we never care about what anybody else thinks, most of us are full of shit, even with ourselves about it. You know, most of us have some part of us that do care about what other people think. And then there's a lot of people that care about everything that everybody says about him. And I think Davis is somebody that cared. And that's where I think he just goes, all right, I'm soft. Fuck this. I'm going to get huge. I'm going to get strong. And now he's putting together one of the worst seasons, even though some of the other weird stats for AD tell you he's been pretty good this year. And I'm not writing off AD or whatever, but it has been a really brutal couple months with shot selection and then the lack of shot making. And, and the way he moves on a basketball court. And I haven't seen him in person yet, which I really want to go to a Laker game at some point because I want to see it in person. But it reminds me of the Red Sox. They had Andrew Benintende, who was this really athletic, good defensive player, um, decent hitter. And then one year he came in, he put on 20 pounds. And all of a sudden he lost. He couldn't get around on fastballs anymore. He couldn't run. He couldn't steal bases anymore. He didn't move in the outfield the same way. And at some point, Cora, the manager, got mad about it. He's like, I don't know why he put on all this weight. Like he, he changed what he was good at, basically. And the Davis thing, I don't know why. Like it's almost like Duncan needs to just call him and be like, hey, dude. You kind of, you know, you, me, KG, 
couple of us, like we're, the reasons we were good was because we were, we were so athletic, but we were malleable and we could run the floor. And uh, why do you, why are you weighing two? He's got to weigh like 270, 280 pounds now, right? I don't know. He's huge. But I mean, we had, we had a text going back and forth with all first team on the floor. Oh, first like, team falling on the floor? Yeah, the Vince right, Carter All-Stars? Yeah. Because I, I don't know who I had. I had well, one. Ta- no, Towns, Towns is up. Towns and Davis are. Towns and Davis. Davis, I mean, but Davis, when he goes down, I'm, I'm constantly, like when LeBron goes down, I know he's going to get right back up after he checks for fake blood. I am so Oh, Jay worried. Crowder. That was another one. Jay Crowder is Jay Crowder. definitely first team. <laughs> like you will, when you go to Jay Crowder's basketball reference, you'll yeah. be like, he was seven times first team all on the floor. Right. He's, he has a basketball camp where he just teaches people how to roll around under the basket for five minutes, try to get a flagrant. Um, yeah, th- those towns Good is pull. another one. Good Which pull. One? Jay Crowder's great. Jay Crowder. Like, well, that was you. you I think that chain started because we were watching whatever, whatever. Suns it was Phoenix and, and Golden State, probably the back. Jay Crowder was down. Week. Yeah. Um, back to the Durant thing. It's just such a bummer that this is who he went all in on. And we're, I think he's the 10th best player of all time. And I think there's, if he, they can make the finals again and how, however that plays out, he has a chance to move into the top nine for me. Um, it's just a bummer that he's had two chances now to really determine where am I going to be and who am I playing with? And the first time he did it perfectly, but for him, it didn't. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not killing him on the on wanting to not stay at Golden State because I think he got what he wanted to get out of it. He had three great years there. They could have won three titles. But then this iteration of it where he goes to this weird Nets team and then now they have this team where they have two guys and a bunch of minimum guys and they're really relying on LaMarcus Aldridge in a crazy way and they don't really have a way to get better. So in in some ways, he's like what LeBron has kind of forced himself in a corner to with the Lakers where there's no outs with the team. I don't know what the outs are with the Nets. Like, I guess you could try to trade Joe Harris and put Cam Thomas in there, but if they actually want to improve this team, it's got to be the Kyrie piece. And who wants Kyrie? You know, who's who's trading for Kyrie at this point? I just read a thing today. I don't, who knows if it was true? It was, it was Scoop Robinson was talking about it. It was, I saw it on Hoops Hype, but how Kyrie's the happiest he's been in years. Do we know if Kyrie <laughs> even wants to play basketball? Oh, he said multiple times that he does and that, you know, basketball is his gift and and all these different things. He's doing a really bad job of convincing us that he does want to play basketball. But yeah, if I'm Durant, I mean, but you know what, man? I mean, you and I caught all this shit all those years when Kyrie was still on Boston. It was that last miserable year. And then he left after he said he wasn't going to leave, which, again, I watched those games. I didn't care that he left because I just didn't. And I mean, and again, I think you care about it more than I do. But we always got all this shit because we would kind of like give you a clue into what the vibe was around Kyrie without going all the way. Because as we've always said, there were more people that were probably worried about where his head was at than it was right. that they were actually mad at him. Right. And to have all of this play out this way where it's basically wasting Durant. And I get why he left you know, San Francisco. He, he shouldn't have gone there if he thought that it was going to be his team and not Steph's. And it's kind of back to your whole Kobe and Shaq thing. Like Kobe couldn't stand Shaq's work ethic because nobody had the Kobe work ethic. And Shaq's like, hey, the reason we're winning titles back in that era is me, not you. And Kobe's like, fuck this guy. And they went with Kobe. So even if it works for a while, even if everybody gets along, Steph, who I think is probably the greatest teammate of this NBA generation, 
that still was like, nah, Durant's like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go play with Kyrie. Think- and the hardened part of it, like again, that's baked into it because he ends up getting traded there later on. Um, I, I'm with you that I I'd, I'd hate to think that Durant's win done winning championships because even if you don't like Durant, which is there are a lot of people that don't like Durant because of the Golden State part of it, if you're so anti-Durant, then I guess you're going to get your wish because it feels like we're wasting a lot of prime years here with a, a roster around him that was supposed to be a lot better, obviously. I think he underestimated the love, just how deep the roots were with Warriors fans and the Bay and, and Steph. I think he thought he was going to this awesome team and he didn't realize that it's, very similar to what Kobe's like in LA where it's just like it's Steph's town. That's it. And I think after I know, cause we were spending time with him that summer. Cause we did a few pods on them. I think after he went toe to toe with LeBron that first time they won the title, he just was like, this is it. I've done it. I'm the best player in the league. Come, come give me my, you know, give me my props. And then, then it was the same stuff. It was, eh, well, you only won because of this. And, and it was just slight, slight, slights, which is what drove him to want to, start his new thing. I think he looks at the Golden State thing as like, that's where I went to law school. You know, it's three years. I got my degree and now, now I'm out in the real world. I have, I, he's doing incredible on the business side, but you know, he, he went all in on Harden and Kyrie and the Harden thing is salvageable because that's, that's a conditioning thing, right? I don't feel like he's in good shape yet. Do you? No, but I wouldn't ever say that he plays like he looks like he's in great shape. Uh, the advanced stats are arguably the worst since the early Oklahoma City years when he wasn't starting yep. games. The three-point shooting is, you know, he's actually not in the neighborhood of of the high three-point shoot shooting guys. Like, he's never, you know, 36 is a really good number, but, you know, he's not, like, ever touching 40. I would tell you this, though, the free, free throw, throw things. Free throws are way down. They're down, but they're starting to creep back up here. They're starting mm. to creep. There. He had 15 the other night against Minnesota, and it's some of that shit that people are falling for. Um, but you can see him still a little frustrated by it all. You can see when he takes threes, and this is what was always annoying about the three-point attempts for anybody searching that foul out. It's like you're not even trying to make the shot anymore. And he'll still kind of turn his body where he hopes to brush into you a little, but he's not going to fall down as much because he hasn't gotten that call a ton his passing is still terrific. I mean, there's still stuff he does with his passing that I'm, I'm just really, really impressed with. But uh, they're actually, you know, record-wise, I think every time you look at them, you're like, oh, wait, they're pretty good still. <laughs> and, and, and that seems to be something we quickly forget. I mean, they're tied with the Bulls right now, just percentage points ahead. Well, we, we, both watched that, we both watched that Bulls game, and it was kind of shocking how the Bulls took it to them in the fourth quarter because I felt like the Nets were trying. If it was one of those, ah, they took the Nets by surprise a little bit. I was like, no, the, the Nets felt like that was a playoff game and the Bulls still kind of surgically took them apart in the fourth quarter. I wonder, I, I remember like a month ago talking about how fun a Kyrie Porzingis trade would be where that he, I just hate watching Dallas. Dallas is almost a no watch for me at this point. I No kidding. Yeah, I can't do it. I like, don't, I don't expect to hear that out of yeah, captain the, of the especially Luca has been hurt. He's been out of shape and I just don't like the team they put around him. I can't watch Porzingis and Luca anymore. And I just think like, just even having anybody who could create as a second person next to him would help that team so much. But let's, uh, let's take a break. Cut some more NBA stuff we want to cover. I'm just going to flag this for you, Rosillo. Basketball reference is one of the great truth tellers of all time. 
And uh, first noticed this when I was doing my book and I was trying to rank people and really going through the stats. Cause in some cases you just had the stats and you had like YouTube clips and that was it. But in general, when the points per game and the free throws start going down and you can look at somebody's career for 10, 12, however many years it is, and you just see that points per game arc going down like it has with Harden, it's usually a terrible red flag. Now you could say, oh, it's a different situation, whatever. But he has kind of the perfect arc that like, if you go look at Allen Iverson's basketball reference where it's like he's in the 30s and he's in the high 20s and all of a sudden it's just, it's done. Like that's the dramatic, clearly there's more going on there. This is a more old school, somebody who's just not at the peak of his powers anymore. And you think of all the stuff they gave for him. I think they were expecting somebody who could at least be one of the best seven players in the league for the next couple of years. Now, if he goes to Philly and it's Simmons and a bunch of picks last year and he's with Embiid, is it a better version of Harden or is it the same? How do you think it plays out alternate universe season Philly last year? Uh, you know, I don't know. He got hurt. You know, he got hurt. So now I just, he's automatically healthy in Philadelphia. It, that's that's a big assumption. Um, you know, Durant. But he didn't tear his ACL. He pulled his hammy. And yeah, it happened you, like eight months ago. No, so you're saying Harden right now with Philadelphia? Yeah, I'm saying I wonder if if part of it is the situation. No, because I think Durant's so easy to play with. I think Durant bails these guys out of bad possessions all the time. You know, I don't clearly. I mean, do you feel like Harden's impeding anything Durant's doing? I think everybody I don't. around. I'm Durant just trying is, to play it out. Like, so do we think this just happens wherever he goes? Harden. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Mm. I. I I don't know why there'd be a much better version of him with Philadelphia when he's playing with the best offensive player other than, you know, it depends on what you want with Steph or Durant. But I still think if you need a bucket at the end of a playoff game, you still feel better with a seven-footer with a handle than you do somebody Steph's size. So I don't know. All right. Have you seen? Do you, do you some know what of I'm the, saying? Like I'm having, I'm no, having a I'm hard time him. understanding. Like, give me your version of it. Then that and I'm not saying you're wrong, but give me your philosophy on like what it would be with Embiid and why it might be different or a higher ceiling of Harden. Because that's where I'm confused. I think Philly's all around team is better, and I think it's a better spot for Harden, where there's no oh who should take it this time. And obviously, he's going to defer to Durant a lot of these times because Durant's the best scoring forward we've ever had in our lives. On the Philly team. It's him and Embiid, but that the combo makes more sense to me in my head. And I might be wrong. Maybe it makes more you sense. You might be right, though. You, you, might, you know, then you have a big guard next to Maxi. You have a big guard next to Curry. Yeah, just like the You've team got- for him better. I don't think he would have to play point guard as much. Like, he's basically playing point guard for the for the Nets, which I think at this point of his career, I don't know if that's awesome either. You know, yeah, but he's I, basically I, been a point guard now for a decade. I get it. And, and to be fair, too, maybe Maxi or Curry are involved in one of the trades and the other way going out. Maybe it's an easier slot to kind of fill right in. But, I mean, whether it's Claxton not playing, Blake's not playing, Joe Harris isn't playing. You know, they got Cam Thomas out there, the rookie from LSU. Who I mean, that, and pretty... they kind of, like, needed him to create <laughs> shots. Like, I, I was yeah. shocked by that in the Bulls game. I uh, I don't know what their outs are, but I, I'm guessing the Joe Harris contract or the Kyrie would be if they're trying to get better. But... This is also a team that could have signed Dinwiddie last year, right? They could have just kept him. They could have, but the numbers they could have given him a contract. Just... Yeah, but at some point, what do you care about the numbers if your if your numbers are already insane? 
And it didn't seem like they cared about the money to begin with, but he was an asset they gave away. They gave away Jared Allen as an asset, which kind of turned into a low twenties pick. And they really were pot committed to DeAndre Jordan for some reason, even though he's been done for three years. Speaking of that, Lakers. I I just don't think it's salvageable. And people are like, oh, you just hate the Lakers. Like, well, both it, are true, it, maybe. <laughs> well, I I like rooting the against the Lakers. One's second one's definitely true. And what I, I've I been sport, prepping, I sports hate the Lakers. Right. And what we've been doing here is I've been kind of prepping for my position on however I'm going to counter you on this one. And that is, why don't you just go ahead and do all your Lakers stuff and then I'll, I'll follow it up. All right. I don't really have any Lakers stuff. I think they're, they're a slightly above 500 team. The, the, the players together make no sense. They didn't make sense as they were being put together and they don't make sense when you watch them. And I don't really know what the outs are. And then you look at like their spot track and you look at all the si- at, at the salaries and it's like, what are their moves? It's basically their moves come down to is somebody going to take Westbrook? And I don't think they'll admit defeat on the Westbrook thing. I actually think, you know, we've seen LeBron get pretty cutthroat with teammates like he did it in 2018 with Wade, where it's like, Wade, reunion. And then in three months, he's like, all right, dude, go back to Miami. So maybe he would get cutthroat with Westbrook. I don't know. But they have no outs. And this is a team that um, is going to be in the play-in. They'll be in that 7 to 10 range, I think. I think that's where we're headed because we haven't even had the Davis injury yet. And he's going to get injured with the weight he's carrying. I don't. I just don't think he's going to play a full season. He's carrying too much weight. Of all the things you get right and wrong, which are, are plenty on both sides of this before we get ready to preview a season, um, and the Bulls would be a good example of getting something wrong, the one thing that I, I thought I was on as anything was you saw the final signings of all of these guys. And I just go, Vogel's fucked. Vogel's fucked. Because you just signed a bunch of guys who aren't just like expect, but they have real personal resumes. Like there's going to yeah. be a pridefulness with this group where you're going to have to end up telling a few of these guys, hey, you're not starting and you're not going to be on the group during the closing minutes. And you might even get some DNPs. So it was going to be tough. Like I was reading some Lakers article the other day. It's like, well, it's still we're still not ready yet because they haven't got none in Ariza back yet. And be like, wait, are you serious? If none in Ariza, <laughs> he's more washed up than Jordan is. And so they just benched Jordan and Bradley, where Bradley had some defensive moments. I thought at times, but the spacing with those two doesn't work. So now it's Dwight who's back, and then Horton Tucker starting. Right. Um, the Westbrook part of this, I to be fair, I was like maybe in the regular season when they need an emotional lift, when the other guys are coasting, when the other guys are missing games, it'll make some sense. It's not going to make any sense in the playoffs. That was being too nice. And I hope Lakers fans see this. Like This is why you and I talk about this the way that it is. It isn't just about the triple doubles. It's the freelancing on defense that is more costly than just a bad shot. Like You want to miss the three? All right, whatever. Plenty of guys do that. But when you just decide, I'm going to just kind of go over here for no apparent reason on defense, and you blow these assignments over and over and over again, which is something he's always done, it's a real problem. And it's it, it almost makes you unplayable, but you can't do that with Westbrook. And then there's the LeBron piece of this. There's 7-5 and five with him. Um, doubting him is, is basically a career decision. It is a failure for your career decision. Yeah, But there are numbers, which you and I have talked about, that are alarming here. He's up to eight and a half three-point attempts per game. He's usually in the sixes, all right? Three points up, free throws down is not a good recipe for him. Exactly. Rebounds, second lowest since his rookie season, 
5.7. Free throw attempts, 4.8. That's the career low. He's he's hitting threes at just over 33%. That's the lowest in five years. And that's with him playing almost 37 minutes a game, which is the most in the last five seasons. Yeah. And I'd say he hasn't ever played, I believe, four consecutive games in a row this season, Bill. So, you know, again, it's LeBron, benefit of the doubt, open mind. Let's see everybody actually play. Let's see Vogel get a rotation here in January where he hurts some feelings. But there are little hints that, that he is finally becoming an older basketball player. And I tell you, there's even moments in a game, I thought in that Clippers game where he had to play center, which is always tough. I don't care who you are trying to defend the driver and then also worrying about the big man, where he did look a little old, but that could be just conditioning the fact that he hasn't gotten a steady pattern at all. So there's a lot of alarming things about this Lakers thing. They're tough to write off with the two guys, but you're right. They're not going to be ahead of Phoenix, Golden State with Clayback, um, Utah. Like Those teams are all locked seeding-wise. Phoenix and Golden State are levitating above everybody else. And then I think Utah is the wild card. I, I was on Logan and Raja's show yesterday. Mitchell has some moments that make me wonder if there's a, a, a jump for him to have as the season goes along, like a little mid-2000s weight-ish. I know we've made that comparison before, but he does have some, no matter who's on the court, where he has some of these two-minute stretches where he's just the best basketball player on the court and doesn't seem to matter who else is. And I do I do value that, especially as we get in the playoffs, because, and, that, and that's why neither of us are going to count out LeBron, because LeBron will have those moments too, and it'll be like, I don't care who's on the other team. LeBron, he's, he's going to be able to get to the rim if he really wants, and he can make, he did add these like crazy 28-foot step backs that he seems like he's making a little more than he used to. I still don't love it, and I don't think Ultimately, if I'm a Laker fan, those aren't the shots I would be banking on to try to win playoff series. <laughs> but the bigger the bigger thing to me is just how bad Davis has looked. You know, that some of the Davis stats now that we have real sample sizes, just how bad of a jump shooter he is this year. And it's like it's not a five game stretch. Now it's like a 20 game stretch where he's just like the worst shooter in the league from 18 feet. That wasn't the guy from four years ago. And I think there's some really concerning if you look at him now versus looking at some of those Pelican peaks, he just looks like a different player four years ago, in my opinion. Even though I know the stats are relatively similar, I'm just saying what I see with my eyes. Yeah, if you go with some of that raw stuff here where you're like, well, what's the problem, guys? It's 25 and 10 again. A couple assists. He's got you a couple blocks and all that. But then Kirk Goldsberry had this stuff on charting his shot attempts. And, I mean, I don't think this was an exaggeration, but was he like last out of 98 qualifiers in yeah, a certain range? In, in a range that he's living in. Yeah. When what made him special to me was his, him from 16 to 18 combined with how he could get to the basket. But um, yeah, it's it's rough. Now watch, they're playing the Celtics tonight. I'm sure they're going to probably beat the Celtics by 15 now that we've spent time on this. But uh I don't think they have a lot of outs. And more importantly, I just think the Suns and Warriors, the upside of those two teams and what we've already seen from them. When you're, we've talked about this in the past, when you're rolling off like 18 in a row, that's a different level. There, there's a consistency talent thing going on. And I know it's regular season, but um, I think both of those teams have the ability to rip off 16 to 18 in a row. I think Milwaukee does too, and Milwaukee's healthy again. I could see Milwaukee going on a big, big run. Now, will they even, let that happen? Will they start resting guys? Are they conserving guys? Because they, you know, put on a lot, a lot of miles on themselves last year. But I think those three teams, the ceiling of those three teams is really high. 
And and then after that, for me, it drops off. And the Bulls are probably the one kind of wild card team for me. That could they have a ceiling that gets into that group? Because yeah, and you and I text about this a lot. I think we're both kind of stunned by how good their execution is in the fourth quarters. That's the that's the amazing thing to me with that team. I feel like in a close game, I just I just like everything they do. I like their shots. I like how they're able to defend in the perimeter. I like the guys they play, and it feels like there's some upside because they haven't gotten Vooch going yet. All right, where where do you have the Bulls? Like in big picture in your head. You know, it's hard for me when it's new, and that's why, you know, I think when you looked at a normal East going in, and the East has been better, I think we just realize it's deeper now. Um, you're like, okay, which of the eight teams are they going to go ahead and replace? And, you know, every single day of the week, I take Chicago over Boston at this point. Atlanta has really struggled defensively after kind of feeling like they righted the ship and were passable enough defensively last year. The Knicks are a mess. So, you know, it just happens. Every year, you're going to start to have these teams. And, like, Washington is not the team that we thought. You know, I didn't even think I thought they were that when they had that really good record. Them slipping, I, I think, is a little bit more predictable than them looking like they're going to be a top four seed. So now Chicago knows exactly who they are almost every night, even with you know not a perfect situation where they had to play uh, Javante Green in some tough defensive matchups because they didn't have Patrick Williams. But what I right. love about it all is I think you know there's something to be said of of teams that have had players that have done stuff indiv- individually, and now you're kind of at that point in your career where you go like do you guys just want to play ball and try to win some fucking games here and there's something to be said of guys being collectively over it where Zach Levine is a terrific player he's as gifted as anyone athletically right now in the league but you know the shot selection decision making all of it was steadily improving but not necessarily where you wanted to have and now Levine knows I've got two other guys I can trust with the ball in their hands to either make a shot or drive it as well DeRozan, his advanced numbers have gone up four straight years from ages 29 to 32. The passing always got better at San Antonio. Now he's making shots, which seems weird. I still don't love a three-year, what, $82, $85 million deal for him at the time. But I think Chicago's like, hey, why don't we just go get a guy who we know we can plug in for 20? And then Lonzo, who's just a really great compliment with everybody else. And so... You know, Vooch defensively is always going to scare the hell out of me. The rebounding, maybe in a tough, bigger series, is going to scare me a little bit. But this is a team, when I watch them, and Caruso's out, I know, for a little bit here. When I watch them defensively and who they are, with it looks like a guard group in their first year, 20-plus games in this, where they all trust each other. I love that when I know I throw in a Bulls game, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what I'm going to get, and it's good. I have some bad Bulls takes from the last couple months. I don't think I'm alone. I didn't think they'd be good defensively. They are. Um. I didn't think Zach and DeRozan would mesh like they have. They did. The DeRozan thing's interesting, though. I hated the contract. I didn't really understand it. I still might, by the way, but I've been wrong about what it would be for this year. Well, so, now there's you know. two years left, so you know you could argue. <laughs> it's the already- last year is the expiring. <laughs> it's fine. I think it's a win for them. Um, it's already a good deal. It's almost over. You know what? Because I, I made that, as you know, I make dumb lists just to try to get in my head the perspective of where guys rank and things like that. So if you hear Daryl say, I'm only trading day, I'm only trading Simmons for one of the best 30 guys in the league. It's like, all right, what's that list look like? And then you, you make the list and it's, and you go, Oh, none of those 30 guys are getting traded for Ben Simmons. Every, every time the team says no. So anyway, you make those lists. Okay. Wait, can I just interrupt? So if you did your hypothetical list of 30 guys, the other, the team on the other end would say no 30 times. Yeah. You're just, you're just making the list. It's like, Dame Lillard, Donovan Mitchell, Jason Tatum, Devin Booker, John Morant, Trey Young. You just, it, all of a sudden you're at 30 and you're like, all right, which which team's going, oh, cool, let's take Ben Simmons, the guy who will play basketball for 
this top 30 asset. But when the Bulls get DeRozan and they have Levine and they have Vucevic, if you're just making a list of who are the top 50 players in the league, those three guys are on it. So in a way, it's like, it's like in fantasy, Sal always does this. Sal will spend $60 on Derrick Henry and $65 on Alvin Kamara. And you're like, wow, that's dumb. He only has so much money left. And then you look and he has like three of the top 20 guys in fantasy. And then, oh yeah, the, his team's eight and four. He just fig- he just kind of figured out the fringes, went all in on these three guys. That's kind of the Bulls thing, right? I, I think Vooch even though he hasn't played well this year, I think if you're making a list, he's still probably one of the 50 best players in the league. Levine and DeRozan are in the top 30 at this point, the way they're playing. And then Lonzo as like the perfect fourth guy. Perfect. Doesn't care how many points he scores. I think their coach is really good. And, you know, if they can get Williams back, that'll be the big X factor for them. But um, the team makes way more sense than I thought. I also think, I think the Bulls fans really like this team. There's some energy behind the whole situation where you think like that it's been seven, eight years of just kind of depressing basketball and depressing situations and guys trying to get out and the Thibodeau thing. And now it's just like, all right, here's a fun team for you guys. Enjoy. Here it is. I'm, I'm glad you said that too, because I think that's where you look at a DeRozan and go, okay, cool, fine. We're not getting any of the max guys. Like we've missed out. Free agency has not been kind to us here in Chicago. So why don't we just do this? Like we'll pay. And there's probably more teams competing maybe to get that number up to where it was. It felt weird at the time because you just weren't hearing that much about him or anything. And then you're like, wait, you got to do a sign and trade and give up. And then you got to do three years on this guy to 85 and he's 32 years old. Like that, what, like how many other teams are in the mix with you on this? But I just think that we, we don't do a good enough of a job, even though we're aware of it, of reminding ourselves there are certain franchises just go, all right, fine, cool. I'll take the B minus guy, you know? Right. Like we'll take the B minus guy. By the way, the the Knicks should have done that. There's a world where the Knicks just have Lonzo and DeRozan as their backcourt. And instead, they try to spread money around. And I think the Knicks are in a way worse spot than they were six months ago. You just go on down the line with those contracts, like Rose for 13, um, Kemba for eight, New Orleans Noel for 13, Burks for 10. And it's like they didn't get, there's nobody on that top 60 list at any of those guys. They could have just given DeRozan three years, 85, not even done a signing trade for that. And at least they have DeMar DeRozan. You know, I, so I, I, I think it was about so you've as gone wrong all as the that. way. You've gone all the way to the other side of this where you think teams with cap space should have just brought DeRozan in now. From what we've seen, this is all yeah. hindsight. And I'm the one who I, the DeRozan contract was one of my least favorite of free agency. But in retrospect, if you're a Knicks fan and you're watching the way DeRozan plays and you also have Rando, who's a little old school in the same way, right? It's like, two-point baskets in the last seven minutes of a game, like just execution. And DeRozan's like one of the best people in the in the league at that and versus what you ended up with. And the Kemba thing, the Kemba thing made me wonder, like, do you guys have scouts? Like, just ask anyone who followed the Celtics the last two years if it's a good idea to sign Kemba at this point when he's he just has no lift anymore. So the next thing is a tough one because they're now gravitating toward the panic trade. And I think they have to be considered in any Dame thing. But the way RJ kind of took a step back this year, I don't think he could be the centerpiece of it. So I don't even think they're in the mix for that. I think, I think, uh, I think Dame gets traded in the next six weeks. I think there's a lot of tea leaves being dropped now. You're not ready yeah. to go there? No, I, um, 
I haven't done enough work on that one specifically. So hmm. I, I like the answer. Yeah. I just think the way I, the way it's gone and the fact that you've had these ugly losses already. Maybe McCollum will be the first thing. And, it, you know, there was some McCollum stuff today where you just I feel bad reading it because he's a good guy. He's been on this podcast right now. He's just in the trade machine vortex for <laughs> for weeks on end where it's just like that would suck. Like, imagine that's your professional life. You're putting all this time and care into into your craft. Your team's not playing that well. And now you're in trade machine vortex. And that's just where you are. And every day is a new fake trade and a new rumor. And that's just what your life is until it happens. Yeah, I mean, he thought it was bad before. Didn't he get on your case? It was like, you want to trade me all the time, man. I know. Did he say that well, about you? He did. He said he said it on this podcast. We were making, he was making fun of me about it. But yeah, I, I mean, that could be like a legitimate blow it up. I don't know. But I, I think the, the league is now really rallying around Dame. And, you know, there's... I, I wouldn't rule out a bunch of teams. I don't want to start that. I don't want to get the aggregator fires going. But I think there's more teams in a Dame kind of sweepstakes thing that I think people would realize. Why don't you just lean into the aggregators on this one and go, here are the top five teams I'm hearing for as a Lillard match just to see it happen. I'm not doing it. It's not worth it anymore. It's not fun to do that anymore. If it, if it was like me and you, I mean, the thing that sucks about doing pods now, if we were just hanging out, shooting the shit, which is what we try to do on a pod. Now, sometimes you can't do that because things get blown out, you know, which I get. I mean, this is a public podcast. I get it, but I, I certainly have some inclinations on some ideas, but I'm afraid to throw them out because everybody's so crazy now. Why don't you do this? Because I know you've been getting real antsy. You sent me a text the other day. You're like, all right, I'm fucking bored. Let's start some trades up. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is not based on information you've heard, but what, what do you think the market is for Dame? I just wonder if they'll tell Dame they're going to do everything he wants. You know, they're going to bring in a new person, basketball ops that Billups is aligned with, that Lillard signs off on, the ownership on and on and on. And that Lillard, because he does like his situation in Portland, the yep. living situation, that it's his team, all these things, but they can change. I mean, hell, LeBron liked being in charge of Cleveland the two times that he ran the franchise. Um, yeah, but think, mean you say he change. likes the situation. Everything about that situation has changed except the city he plays in. Yeah, but you, they've I don't changed think... the GM, they've changed the coach, the owner's changed. A lot yeah. of the guys on the team has changed. Like, really, but the only thing team. that's similar about the situation is he's playing with CJ McCollum and Nurkic, I guess, would be the only... Those are the only constants. And the uniforms. And they're terrible on defense again. So, you know, whatever it is, this thing, they tried to fix it around the, the margins and it, it just never worked. And Nurkic's What would you health, do? If you're the GM, would you go fringes or would you go Dame Trade? Because I would actually... Nurkic <laughs> would be the first one for me. I would, I would try to do a smaller-scale Nurkic move. Inspiring contract. Uh, first thing I do is I ask Dame what he wants to do and hope I get an honest answer out of it. And oh, so you would do that, the Dame lunch? Oh yeah, yeah. That's what you got to do. Because dinner I or lunch is lunch is a little more low pressure, but dinner is more. This is how much you mean to me. Let's go to a really nice place. Get the back room. What's what's fuck am I gonna do? Watch the T Wolves again? I'll 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 make time for dinner. <laughs> me? <laughs> it's not like I'm picking anybody up. So. I, I think you have to. You have to go into that and ask him and hope you get an honest answer and be like, what do you want to do? Because if you're leaning towards you want to go nuclear and force your way out of here, then let's work together on this. But I would be making sure as the new GM that I had no choice in this, that I didn't show up going, hey, let's get rid of Dame. Because still having Dame 
Whatever you think of him as a smaller guard as he ages and some of the terrible shooting numbers we saw from the season, whatever you think of him, you still have a very important piece to a franchise that's a marketable piece. You're in contention. You know, it's it's not championship driven or any of those things, but it's still like you're somewhat relevant here. Yeah, somewhat isn't even being nice enough. You're very relevant still as just, hey, we've got the Trailblazers game tonight and all those different things. So if he's still on board of, of whoever is in charge again of trying to figure this thing out and seeing if he can be a part of the future, I think that's your first move. Anybody that I think goes in there aggressively is like, oh, I'm just getting a reset button because we don't defend enough. We keep losing to the playoffs without realizing where Dame's head is at with this, I think would be a mistake. So would you grab McCollum for Simmons for McCollum? Yeah, I would have. Uh, that deal, Portland would have done that deal with the older management the entire time. That's that's the deal they wanted to do. The deal's it been does there seem forever. like that's the deal. Does That seems that's like Philly's worst case scenario deal. Well, the argument from the Portland side, I believe, would have been, okay, all right, Ben maybe you know, if you're ranking players one through however far down the list you want to go, people would have Simmons across the league rank higher than CJ, but look at how CJ would fit with the group that you have um, yeah. versus how Simmons is fit with the group that you have. And that argument was never good enough to convince Daryl. So there you go. Daryl um, was going to I can't believe we're talking about better. Simmons trades. I'm not doing this anymore. But how, much right. more, how much more time do we have? Can we talk about succession really quick? I could talk about succession for the rest of the day, but I think right. 20 minutes will do it. All right, we'll take a break. Talk succession. I'm really proud of ourselves. We've been talking for 70 minutes. Neither of us took a Steph victory lap. I feel like we, if Steph was the Soho house, we would have been the two CEOs constantly throwing parties, <laughs> holiday extravaganzas. Are you a <laughs> Just member? Bring your Vax cards. I'm a member of the Steph house. You, you and I are like, we never gave up on that guy. We're right, allowed so, to go to the Malibu Steph house. You were, we're allowed to go. We have access to all the Steph houses. Um, all right, succession. So <sighs> we're taping this on a Tuesday. This will be the last part of the podcast. So if you don't watch succession or um, you haven't seen Sunday's episode for whatever reason, feel free to turn it off, come back later, or just turn it off. And I'll see you on Thursday on this podcast. And you can listen to Rosillo's pod. Do you think Kendall is dead? I don't. Okay, make the case. You want to make the case or you want me to make the case? I want you to make the case why you don't think he's dead. Well, uh, yeah, we could argue the, te- the, the show needs some sort of shakeup here, but I feel like the foundation of the show is son versus father. And I don't know that we've gotten the full payoff, although the dinner got very aggressive with Logan going at Kendall and lighting him up. We can do more on the dinner a little bit later. Like they finally had the head-to-head, referencing the kid dying uh, back in England. Um, you were where all of us were waiting on that part of it. So that reference would maybe hint at, hey, maybe Kendall's dead here. But I just think the show's foundation. Not these guys are doing an amazing job. I would not doubt Jesse Armstrong or anybody involved in this show. But I think it would significantly alter the foundation of what this show has been about. Joanna Robinson wrote an incredible piece this week about the show and about all the imagery and kind of tips for Kendall headed toward this way. And they've done a good job both with the drowning and then him jumping off buildings, right? There's been over and over again, he's on a balcony looking over. There's in the Safe Room episode, which is my favorite episode, like he, it starts with him on the balcony kind of looking over the city and then 
the show ends and all of a sudden there's these protective windows up in the same spot that he was. And it's always about this guy either falling or drowning for three years, right? And then they finally just said, fuck it. I mean, he was even in a car as somebody else drowned. And then this week they said, fuck it and did it with the pool. I, my guess is, so go one of two ways. Either he's just dead in the last episode and nobody knows because none of the screeners have leaked out. Either he's just dead in the last episode is them dealing with this or he's maybe he's in a coma. Maybe they so found you him haven't the seen it. You haven't seen nobody's it seen because it. somebody else, anyone. somebody else who would have the juice to know asked me the exact same question because we were texting about the show. He goes, you think Kendall's dead? And I went, I just can't imagine them altering. I don't think I still think there's some meat on that bone of the Kendall and Logan thing. Well, so I would bet the more I'm thinking about it, I would bet on. He gets saved. Maybe there's some sort of scare. Maybe he real it snaps him out of it and he realizes he has to confess to being in the car accident because what is the only way that he can trump his dad at this point? His dad's defeated him. His dad's checkmated him. Even that he has this big dinner showdown with him that he's all excited about and he does the switch the plate thing to get into his dad's head about, oh my God, am I getting poisoned? His dad just sniffs out all of it and defeats him every step of the way. The only piece he has left is actual real knowledge of a crime that his dad committed, which he also committed because he killed this waiter in the car crash and then his dad covered it up for him. And so they plant the seed in that last episode with, hey, somebody's working on a podcast. By the way, that was a Ringer podcast. I wish they had shouted us out. The fall of the Roy family narrative podcast. Um, and that would have been a perfect <laughs> Ringer podcast. But um, they plant that seed and he's like, uh. So they bring the waiter back then the dad plants the seed again. He shut, he throws the waiter in his face. This is his only move left. All right. Yeah, I killed the guy and you covered it up. And that's how he takes him down. I can see that being the season finale. And that goes Maybe back to your father versus right. son premise. Yeah, you know, the show is so good that this would be the kind of show that would say, yeah, we know there's still meat left on the bone and that's why we're going to kill him now. We're not going to run it to the point where it's not fun anymore. You know, it's funny in that scene, and I, I normally wouldn't do this, but I thought there was a really good chance, too, for Logan to call out Kendall on his kind of, you know, activism play where it was, I'm going to be this activist, which was never really very believable. And right. they didn't really develop it all that much. And I think they poked fun at it more than they could have. And I thought Logan you know, could have probably had a line or two in there where he's saying, oh, and so what are you like some fucking hero now? Because some right. people on Twitter liked you. You're so full of shit. Like, look at this villa, private chef. It's me. It's always been me. And you're going to fight the thing that made you you, which isn't even a fucking real person. I yeah. thought like, oh, they're definitely going to get into that because he's going to call him out for how stupid it was and kind of like just have everybody on the same page. But then it was like, well, if you're going to sit there and say, hey, are you queer? Are you trying to fuck the waiter that you killed? It's like, oh, OK, we're going to go a little harder. Yeah. A little, go a little harder, harder meter, and, and yeah, <laughs> so, we're going so, bare bones. So maybe the fake activist move by Kendall isn't as important. And I think the the theory on it is great. Maybe, maybe this show is that because I love this show. I love this show in a way I've never liked a show. There's episodes that are about absolutely nothing. It's all dialogue driven. And I love every part of it. And I've gone back and watched the episodes again while I'm watching these, which is hilarious because I realize just how good they are at planning stuff. Like yeah. they plant things in very believable ways. Like, okay, here's the setup. Here's the disruption part of it. And here's the payoff. And all these different parts of the storyline all connect there. Um, I, the dead thing is just making the rounds. I don't. Well, what the, is the, the show? New Yorker, what, how, the New Yorker profile is one of the reasons people thought 
that maybe he's dead because of the timing of it when it comes up. But it almost seems like here's our profile of Jeremy Strong right before his last episode. Then there's quotes in there that are quotes. I'm not the first person to make this point. Quotes in there from Brian Cox and Kieran Culkin and the showrunner that are the kind of things you say when you don't have to work with somebody again. They, like, first of all, one of the most riveting profiles I've read in a while, and I know you loved it too. Um, It was rare to have that kind of candidness, both from the person who's the subject of the profile and the people who have to work with him. And it was just clear, like, this is a really difficult guy who has this whole process. And I watched the, I watched the show after I read the profile because I watched it. Then I watched it again after the profile and that dinner scene with him and Brian Cox is totally different when you hear about all the inside stuff with that scene and how their methods are different. And Cox is kind of like, all right, enough with this method stuff. Be a fucking actor. Just show up, learn your lines, play off me. And that's what acting is. Jeremy Strong's got to do this whole, if my character is going down a pit, I have to also go down a pit. And they talk about how he was sobbing after the scene because it was so emotional for him. And you could tell from the piece, Brian Cox is kind of like this fucking guy. <laughs> like, oh yeah, <laughs> all right. This, is, this guy's reinvented acting. Like, I'm pretty sure acting is this. But it's such a fascinating scene to rewatch because the real stuff, the real life stuff is kind of in the scene in a, a little bit. Did you notice that? Yeah, the shaved head, which they bring up in the profile. Um, again, this profile is so great just because it's a profile. It's Michael Schulman just came out. Uh, I want to get into one other thing with it a little bit later. But, you know, the shaved head, the rebirth, and then he says, you know, I just did it. But then I needed to do it again on my own to reinvent myself. So you're like, oh, there's another clue. That yeah. could be it. Uh, the Brian Cox part of it where he's, you know, an English theatrical background in sort of like the traditional English actor, I guess. And they tell the story about how like Dustin Hoffman was on set of this movie in the seventies with this other like legendary guy and Hoffman rolls onto the set, just looks like shit. And they're like, what's wrong with you? They're like, well, this character's really stretched and burnt out and tired. So I stayed up and partied for like three straight nights. I've been at a bender. And the other guy goes to Hoffman, like, how about just trying to act? (laughs) (laughs) Right. How about you do that instead? Like, that's what we're all doing here. And you're right. What I love about this profile is not really taking any sides. Like too many times now it's like, okay, somebody has, they want to look cool. So they're going to cover somebody cool and they're going to try to be cool with the person. Um, or they're going to want to total hit piece on this person because of my own personal shit. And this was just, Hey, we're going to do this thing on Jeremy strong where it's pretty clear. He's not the greatest time to work with. And the other thing is that like, you're also just playing Kendall Roy. Like this isn't, some of these other roles where you're thinking about DiCaprio in The Revenant or something, which is even funnier because they talk about Strong and how he would basically work these unbelievable relationships and he became a Daniel Day-Lewis guy. Like Daniel Day-Lewis right. becomes his mentor. Yeah, and he you're was thinking, like okay, his assistant. Yeah, and he just like wrote letters and he got his way and like props to him for doing that. And the, the I have to use it because I was just dying laughing all day yesterday thinking about it. Last of the Mohicans, it's shot in the Canadian wilderness, I believe. And Daniel Day-Lewis gets there earlier and is like, all right, we're making cabins. Let's go. So there's like real construction <laughs> people on the site making these cabins that people are going to yeah. live in. And Daniel Day-Lewis goes to hang a fucking window and screws it up. Now, look, I'm not telling you hanging a window in the frame is the hardest thing to do, but you do kind of have to know the steps. 
And yeah. I can't imagine anybody was letting him do finished carpentry on this thing because trim work is an entirely different thing. Those guys are artists and it's very, very hard. And Daniel Day-Lewis is thinking, well, all right, if, who's this last Mohicans guy? Well, he probably installs windows. He made his own canoe. <laughs> he made his own canoe. And they see the window that he puts in and they're like, why don't we just put you on a dining room table, Daniel? Is that okay? Like, So as much as I appreciate these method actor things, there's got to be so many people in the world around them. They're like, you actually don't need to do necessarily all of this shit. And for a role like this, where he's great as Kendall Roy, you're like, okay, there's so many clues in that piece uh, in the New Yorker where I think you'd agree. There's just a lot of guys that were like, it's not always the best time. It's not the best time. He doesn't want to rehearse. And, you know, Jeremy Strong, who is the actor, says, you know, I want to see the bear. I want to be scared by the bear by seeing it. And they're just like, all right, can we rehearse a couple lines, though? And they're like, no, can't. Well, it answers the question, right? The, the writer went into that piece going, why did it take this long for a great actor to find the right role? And he answers it. That's what the piece is about. It's like, oh, because this guy was kind of, kind of, kind of a maniac method actor. And sometimes you have to find the right part at the right point in your career. And he knows it's the right part. I said when House and I did the, our 25 favorite succession characters for the uh, Prestige Pod, I, th I said I thought it was the best performance on an HBO show since Gandolfini for Strong's performance as Kendall, I think is the best thing I've seen on cable Prestige TV in 15 years. Like, I think he's that good. I think the nuance and the stuff that he's done and it makes sense that the the lines seem a little blurred for him in real life versus Kendall. Like he's immersed in that character. I almost, I read that piece and I wondered like, can he come out of this? What's his next role? Is he, is he just going to be, you know, a DA in some John Grissom book as his, his next part? I don't know how he comes out of this. I think he's just going to be Kendall. It needs to be really hard to come out of it. Because when he's doing the answers in the piece, I mean, there's one part where they're at some, where are they? Uh, he's got a place overseas where his wife is from. Um, yeah. And they're at some seaside little villa and these guys recognize him from a Guy Ritchie film that he didn't like. And they were like, hey, you know, from, you know, whatever. And he was like, oh. And then the guy doing the piece, Shulman says, you know, for reasons he wouldn't get into, he said he didn't enjoy the movie. <laughs> and you can just see Kendall going, like, why didn't you like the movie? Uh, well, it, it was, I mean, it was, it was a movie, but it was, it, it just, it, it was a movie. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. We'll leave it. That, I mean, that's it's to be under. Yeah. Well, Kira, Kira Culkin like lobs a couple like harmless grenades at him, but they are grenades. So you think process. because you think the, all right, see, now you got me thinking about this. I love the way you do this. You are very good at this. Well, you he think said, because we had yeah. access to criticisms of him from coworkers. It's because they know he's dead and they don't have to work with him anymore. This is a conspiracy bill at all. This is you on 11 right now. I don't it's think good. I'm the only one with that conspiracy. Where Culkin's basically saying, yeah, we had this one thing where he kept doing this speech. And then the third time, uh, the lady who plays Shiv, Sarah Snook in character was like, shut up, Kendall, as he started doing the speech. Like, <laughs> you put stuff like that, you tell a writer stuff like that, that might not be somebody you're you're still working with. Uh, a year from now. Or so maybe it did, he knows. It did raise my hackles up. I Listen, I Fennessy and I talk about this all the time. Like, if somebody's doing a magazine profile, both the conceit of the writer and what the person who's being interviewed wants out of that profile, there's another really good example, the Adam McKay profile that Vanity Fair did. And in that profile, 
all of a sudden he goes into his whole fallout with Will Farrell, who was like his best friend and his business partner. Now they don't talk and volunteers this information that I, I thought was really surprising that he talked about. He basically said, um, you know, they had a, a falling out, wasn't going great. They were going to dissolve the company at the same time he's doing this Lakers show and Will Farrell wanted to play Jerry Buss and he cast John C. Riley, their friend, for, Je for Jerry Buss because he was, you know, it, he just thought Will Farrell was going to be miscast and that was the blowout. There was some weird timeline stuff and Matt Bellany, who has this, um, who, who writes for Puck, who has a, it's a really good newsletter and Matt Bellany kind of broke it down. The story wasn't totally true because they cast Michael Shannon first and that got announced. So he cast Michael Shannon over Will Farrell. They decided Michael Shannon didn't work as, as Jerry Buss. And then they got John Riley. And so Farrell was mad at some point of the process, but just to lay that out, this is his best friend. This is like if me and house suddenly we're not talking anymore. And then I gave a magazine profile and just gave my side of the story about why house and I no longer talk. Like, very odd. Um, so I was wondering, like, did the writer pull this out of him or did McKay want this out there? Because obviously in his life for a couple of years, a lot of people in his life were like, Hey, what happened with you and Will? And there's probably a Will side and an Adam side for why they broke up. And Matt Bellany did a good job of breaking down the two sides. But I wonder like, how does that end up in a piece? Cause it shouldn't have, he shouldn't have talked about it. I don't think he should have, but how does it get in there? And what is the, the old, upside yeah. for Adam McKay to have that out there? I, I read it differently. I thought it was... Let's hear it. Maybe McKay, because he was explaining, like, I thought the part where he explained, you know, I did try to reach out to him. I've sent some emails, right? And I just haven't heard anything. I thought it was a friend trying to take another chance at being friends still. By revealing a story yeah. about how you didn't cast your buddy for a part and he's butthurt about it? How is that going to help you guys reconcile? Because that part's already been done. I mean, if that was the reason why, if that's truly the reason why they're at this point is, is in their friendship. But I, when I was reading about like some of the, I don't know, I guess I kind of read it as like, if I had somebody in my life who was really important that I still cared about, we'd had this massive blow up and nothing else had worked to reconcile the relationship. Maybe I would be more motivated to share it. Not because I wanted to get my side out because I want my friend to maybe see how I felt and that I still cared. So that's the glass half full version. The glass half that's empty is yeah. The gla yeah, glass, glass half, half empty is that's me though. Yeah, but glass half empty is I'm promoting a movie. This will get attention for it. Like if you're gonna be the I, cynical I, version of that, I didn't even yeah. No, so I don't. I don't. But I don't usually, know the answer. That's why I bring it up. I have no idea what the motivation was because the the other thing is Joe Hagen's really good at getting people to say stuff they might not have known they were gonna say. Right. So like an hour later, it's like fuck. I can't believe I told him about that Lakers thing. I was never going to talk about that, but I just felt comfortable. And then I said it and now it's out there. You know, I don't know the answer. I don't know. But, and I'd have to, you know, I, God, I love the way your mind works on this. On, I don't, uh, because on the succession I, thing. You think he's dead then? You think he's dead because his coworkers were like, he's not the greatest to work with. No, I and, think, I think this is the kind of show that would have the balls to kill him off. If yeah, they felt like right. that character had run its course. I think the way they, they usually like the, the big, big, big ass shows and the greatest shows of all time, it's that second to last show of the season are like the really memorable shows. So the, it yeah. fits that profile. The characters run its course. Like they basically, they beat the life out of him. And then the dinner scene was the last version of just destroying him. 
So it makes sense. Like this is, we took him as far as he could go. And maybe the show becomes more interesting with Kendall drowning in a pool or he almost drowns and it's an epiphany. And now he realizes I'm going to go get my dad. Either way, I don't think he's going to be as involved in the show next year. I think the show, the show steers toward the other characters and the Tom Shiv thing um, and Roman and Jerry and whatever the sexual harassment lawsuit that you know is coming with that whole thing. By the way, I thought that was one of the funniest things I've ever seen on a TV show, that dick pic section <laughs> near the end. I, I was I was howling laughing. I just thought everything about that and then Culkin realizing his dad got it and like his spine just crumbles at the table. He just doesn't know where to go. Everything about it was just so great. It's such a good show. It was an unbelievable scene when 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 Culkin looks at at Brian Cox at the at the, at the conference table, like hey, did you and he's see just my sick dad. <laughs> <laughs> and then immediately, this is the be- this is why. Like some shows, I don't know, I don't know. They just probably you know, it's not like the hardest thing. You would say, hey, let's have a thing where Kendall or or not Kendall, um, Roman sends a dick pic to his dad. It's like, okay. And then they have a meeting about it immediately after. Like, all right, let's go. What's up with you? Are you weird? (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) It's just, it's like, I'm trying to save my company. I've got all these moving pieces. Let's get down to you. And then it's like having a son explain to his dad why dick pics aren't a big deal was the best because that's probably how it would be handled. Although, you know, different parameters here. Then goes right to the Shiv Jerry scene. And yeah, Shiv, right. who's just turned into, you could argue, the most evil person on the show. Okay, I think that's been to- her evolution. And she's just like, oh, cool. This is finally my chance. And Jerry, who, you know, she she's, was the one receiving the dick pic. It wasn't like she was asking for it. And she realizes this is a way to screw over Jerry, which is pretty brilliant. Yeah, and and she also, you know, they do, like, again, here's here's what's so good is that they do very believable plantings of these evolutions where Shiv decides she's going to go full Shiv by ha- being out in Italy and talking with her mother, who sucks. And the mother's saying, it's good that you're not a mother. You know, I shouldn't have been a mother. That scene was it, incredible. Th- right. I should have had it, dogs. <laughs> There's so many good lines that aren't trying to be good lines, too. That's the other thing that's great about this show. You can see in other shows where the writer's trying to, like, show off. and how Yeah. This show this show shows off in its writing by not even trying. You like when Shiv, call, Shiv called her mom, they, they're outside and the mom's walking. And she's like, oh, good, Scary Poppins is here. And she's like this throwaway line. It's like, Scary Poppins, great line. In the writer's room, you'd be like, I got one. Let's call her Scary Poppins. Everybody'd be like, good one, good one, high five. Uh yeah, the the show when it's really good, it'll have like three or four scenes that you could just watch like ten times, like that scene with Shiv and the mom, that dinner scene, and then the entire dick pics conference room. That whole thing are like three of the better stretches in the show's history, and they're all in the same episode. Yeah, are you team Tom? I love Tom. I love him. I mean, it's it's very predictable what happens with this sexual pivot here where he's he's basically playing what would be the stereotypical female emotional line yeah. against Shiv's masculine emotional line. But Tom, when he has the meetup with Logan midway through the season and he's actually like welcoming to Kendall um, 
But then he sits there and goes, you know, I just, I can't go with you because my sense is you're going to get fucked because Logan never gets fucked. And it was, it was perfect. Great show. Can't wait for the season finale. Do you want to come on BS uh, uh, after me and Sal on Sunday night to do the succession reaction? Yeah, please. I mean, 25 I, minutes. I watch, I rewatch the episodes in a way that I haven't consumed a show like this. And I don't even know. I don't know what it is. I don't know why it is. I went back and watched some of the first season stuff again. And I'm like, oh, that's, oh, wow. That was such a good job. Like, you know, it's almost in the moment. You don't give the show enough credit for some of the stuff that it's pulling off. But again, the reason I like it is that there's shows that I like and I know why. With this show, I even thought the first couple episodes of the season, I was like, all right, what are we doing? Like, wh when's it going to go? And yet, then, like, the birthday party episode, it just kind of went, you know, like I get all yeah. the reasons of what they were doing in the plot line and Matson and Gojo and all that kind of stuff. But I was like, I'm just enjoying hanging out with this group for an hour without any real, even if there's not any significant development, I'm just into it. Right. They do a good job of when they have to move stuff along, they'll just have a giant, everybody in a room with lots of people and moving pieces and they'll just figure out how to play everybody against each other. It's an incredible show. All right, Rosillo. You have uh, you have your own podcast. You're going to be doing Yellowstone with Chris Ryan on the Prestige TV. You're doing that every week, right? Yeah, every week. We missed one because of Thanksgiving, and then I got Kirk Herb Street on Wednesday for my great. Day, so, all right, good there to see go. you as always. This podcast was produced by the man, the myth, the legend, uh, a guy who was very drunk and happy last night, Kyle Creighton. We will see you on this podcast on Thursday.